sometimes I see what female tourists wear in Egypt mm, and I'm mm. just like, honey, <laughs> like, right. cover up your decolletage, like do a little bit of research before you get here. Um, so I think there can be a certain ferocity of judgment that's unique to tra- like fellow travelers and people who are living abroad who share the same origin point or, or home country. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with writer and editor Colleen Kinder, whose book Letter to a Stranger comes out today. The book is about the role strangers play in our lives and how travel is a constant opportunity to interact with strangers. Each essay in the book is constructed as a letter to some person who the author can't stop thinking about for some reason. And reading the book made me think of my own encounters with strangers over the years, and it's interesting to think about which ones we remember more than others and why. Colleen's book actually comes from an ongoing feature in the travel magazine she founded called Off Assignment. And you can submit your own letters to the strangers you met in your travels to the magazine. More about that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Over the course of our conversation, Colleen and I talk about how traveling solo opens you up to strangers. We talk about how places like planes, trains, and hostels open you up to encounters with strangers, and how strangers we meet early in our travel careers tend to linger with us since we're uniquely vulnerable to people when we're first starting out. We talk about how the potential for romance affects the way we talk to certain strangers. We talk about kissing strangers and writing paper letters to strangers after meeting them, and we speculate on what certain strangers must think of us. At one point, I talk about the Christian girl who united a lounge full of travelers in a D.C. hostel. I also talk about the porn star I met on the subway the first time I ever took it in New York. It's such a central topic to travel, and we both have lots of stories to share. I called Colleen in Egypt, where she lives with her family, so sometimes there's a slight time delay in our conversation. And in fact, once I got cut off when I ran out of Skype credits, the last couple minutes of the conversation consists of a separate phone call to Egypt later that day. I begin by reading a bit of the book's foreword, which was written by the renowned essayist Leslie Jameson. Let's listen in. Uh, So, Colleen, your book, Letter to a Stranger, Essays to the Ones Who Haunt Us, is not necessarily a travel book, but I think travel is something that often reminds us of the role that strangers always play in our lives. Um, And in her foreword, Leslie Jameson, the essayist Leslie Jameson says, we are born into a world of strangers. We spend our lives turning them into beloveds and ghosts, the ones we need, the ones we ache for, the ones we lose, the ones we brush up against and never really know who stay with us anyway. We spend so much of our lives in the company of these people whose names we'll never know, people we'll never meet again. We rarely honor them. How rarely we admit to ourselves the strange, unannounced ways they can lodge inside of us. So tell me about this project uh, and how this curious but very real phenomenon of this interaction we have with strangers turned into a book. As you know, this project dates back to a moment in 2013 when I was teaching travel writing and I invited the travel writer Pico Iyer to come and speak to my students at Yale. Right, your hero and mine. And I had done a- yes, um, yeah. everyone's hero. He's such a wonderful human being. I had done a lot of prep to host Pico. I had assigned a number of his essays to my students and really had put a lot of thought into what questions to ask him and how to get him talking about his writing process. And he pretty much commandeered the seminar and rather than have like a Q&A, he started telling the, ten, like the, the behind the scenes versions of his reporting trips and specifically what 
struck me was the way he spoke about an Icelandic stranger that he had met while reporting for Time magazine about 20 years earlier, like a long time ago. Um, He hadn't written about this woman. She was nowhere in his feature story about Iceland, but she really dominated his memories of that trip Hmm. and had clearly been kind of like a portal into Icelandic culture for him. And this wasn't a romantic connection. This was, this was just a very strong affinity between them. And I really was struck by the fact that he'd never written about it. And one of the things that came to mind is, is where would one write about such an experience? I mean, this is such a common experience that we meet people as we move through the world who we weren't anticipating and, they seize control of our itinerary and they later dominate our memories. But there isn't an obvious, there wasn't at the time an obvious publication that would be a home for those kinds of stories. So I started talking to fellow writers, um, people like you, Rolf, mm-hmm. uh, people whose work I admired and, and folks who were travel writers, but also kind of had a foot in some other realm. Like I'm thinking of Julia Cook, who I know you posted Mm. on the show, Mm -hmm. you know, she writes about, about art and Mm -hmm. history and uh, does some travel writing, but is, is also many, many other things, not just a travel writer. And I started asking those people, when you come home from an assignment, you often feel like there is a story you want to tell that you didn't go looking for. And, everyone said yes. There was just a really strong, affirming, resounding yes. And there was a real appetite for a platform to tell that particular species of stories. And so I came up with a bunch of prompts with the help of a number of people, yourself included. Lavinia Spaulding is another person who comes to mind and started testing out these writing prompts with my peers. And one of them was the letter to a stranger prompt. And it was to write a letter to a stranger who still haunts you. And out of all the prompts that I gave people and said, Hey, give this a try. Here's a arbitrary, you know, deadline by which to send me something. There is no payment, but I will love you forever. If you do this Um, out of all the prompts, that I gave out letter to a stranger by far was the most fruitful narratively and resulted in the, in the most authentic and really obviously unique writing. And and Leslie Jameson wrote the very first piece and Lavinia Spaulding submitted something right on the heels of what Leslie wrote. And both of their essays just felt like almost like they had always existed inside of them and they just Hmm. needed the right summons and the right container to come forth. And I think what has really excited me about this project is feeling like we, we came upon the right box for a whole wealth of human experience. Like people just needed this container and then the stories to occupy it were infinite. Well, I I think that there's something, um, sort of a little, a little bit infectious when you realize other people are sharing their strangers' stories, suddenly you think of your own. Um, and yeah. I remember reading Lavinia's story, and I want to talk about that down the line as, as well as Leslie's story. Um, but Pico, in, in your own introduction, you talk about sometimes it's the people who sort of nag us like ghosts that we remember as the important ones, and it's good to sort of exercise those ghosts by writing about them. And then, But Pico Iyer made the point that 
writing an article or a book is sort of like a letter to a stranger anyway. You're putting words on a page mm-hmm. that somebody mm-hmm. you don't know is going to read. Um, and in a sense, travel writing really is making sense of strangers because almost by definition, a travel writer goes mm-hmm. to a place where one is not a part of and one knows nobody. And it's by navigating strangers that we create stories about a place. Um, and so uh, over the course of our conversation, I'll probably, I'll probably share a lot of stories that just occurred to me when I was reading your book. Um, but I know that sometimes the stories are not even really about the strangers themselves. They're sort of about certain things we find in ourselves by looking at other people. Um, for example, Leslie's story, which you can summarize if, if you'd like, is, um, is sort of about seeing something in yourself by seeing another person. Um, and Lavinia's s- yeah. story, which is another one I, that I welcome you to comment upon just because those are two friends of ours, that's sort of about seeing the perfection in not knowing someone too well and then having mm-hmm. sort of that, that perfection mm-hmm. unravel when you realize a little bit more information about them. Um, so let's, right, right. Let's, let's talk about those stories to, to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the way you described Leslie's story, I think, is is right on the nose. And it's one of the reasons that the first section of this book, which contains 65 essays, is called Symmetry. And I felt like it would be wonderful to begin the book with Leslie's essay because it was such a seminal story. But also, I felt like there was something really powerful about opening with a set of stories that really capture in various ways that experience of brushing up against somebody who illuminates something inside of ourselves and just like glimpsing, glimpsing some facet of a truth in ourselves in another. And 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 so she was in a bar when she saw her stranger, right? Yes. She was in a bar and in Nicaragua, in Granada, and she kept running into this, drunken magician who she had a lot of pity for and judgment towards and the essay in a really deft way kind of migrates from one of judgment towards self-implication and we see her start to confess that what she's most critical of in the stranger is something she's grappling with herself which is alcoholism Hmm. Um, and it's I mean it's such a short essay but it, it moves through that emotional trajectory so fluidly and swiftly and there's so many layers to it and many of the essays that I grouped alongside Leslie's have some version of that same phenomenon of all of a sudden like kind of waking up to a truth in yourself because of a stranger you ran into Hmm. whereas for Lavinia's Lavinia's essay is actually in the very end of the book uh, in a section called farewell, because there's kind of a spirit of wanting to be rid of her stranger for precisely the reasons you are pointing towards. He was not who she thought she was. And the essay begins on this really like romantic, infatuated, dreamy note and moves towards like the rude awakening. It's almost like, you know, going from a night of intoxication to like a, a harsh hangover the next day where you're just like, what was that about? <laughs> Who yeah. is that person? Uh, why did I wake up here? It's a little bit of that kind of trajectory. And um, and ultimately, the writer, Lavinia, in this case, like is 
rather annoyed that the stranger tries to get in touch with her years after the fact, because it was like she wanted to, the little, the little romantic element that she had left in her, her mind and memory, she wanted to keep that way. And him contacting her, I think through Facebook was like a a total like uh, rupture of what little romanticism remained of that memory. I I think a lot of these essays touch on romance, including your own. And I think that there's a real idealization that can happen with strangers. In fact, um, I think Leslie quotes Walt Whitman, who says, passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look at you. And I think Lavinia's essay is about meeting, you know, this Dutch stranger on a party beach and sort of idealizing their connection and then realizing that he was not idealized as she thought is a familiar one. Um, But there's there's a real parallel here, like in the dating world, not just travel, but like people you go on dates with it by definition, you know, especially in the dating app age, um, dates are, you know, formal interactions with strangers. Um, Mm -hmm. and so did you find Mm -hmm. that a lot of the submissions had to do with romance? You know, it's so funny. I'm really glad you brought up dating because I actually feel like, I wonder if, if I asked the writers in this book, like, are you somebody who loves a first date more than a second date? Hmm. I would guess that the, the degree of yeses would be higher than perhaps in the average population. I would definitely put myself in the category of somebody who feels an exceptional charge in any initial encounter, whether it's with a place or a person, whether that person is a, rom- is a potential romantic partner or, you know, an uncle on a bus, you know, I, I, I think there's a certain kind of energy field around that first encounter. Um, and I think it's one of the things that charges these essays is that that charge existed between those two people, but it also like remains there in the memory of that, of that moment. Do we often receive essays about romance or did I, did I call through a lot of letter to strangers that were romantic. You know, I would say not to the degree you would probably think. Huh. Uh, I would say gratitude uh, and like thank you letters to people who were helpful to somebody who was vulnerable are probably the most common category or family of letter to stranger stories. I think, yeah, and I think a lot of the romantic stories that we have in the book and in the essay series on Off Assignment are they're kind of like missed connections or they are romances that weren't fully brought to fruition Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that, you know, it was about like seeing somebody and longing for them, but ultimately, you know, that connection not turning into a relationship or anything lasting. So, um, so there's a charge of romance, but also a great degree of not knowing and not, not bringing something fully to fruition. Well, I think that at the outset of romance, be it a blind date that goes nowhere or something that's going to lead to something more, it's it's so narrative. Every there's things seem so symbolically charged. I thought it was interesting that your story in the book sort of talks about the prospect of a kiss that might be inappropriately too soon for a normal situation, but kisses have certain energy that can can portend something more than a kiss, right? Or they can just be what they are. Um, and it made me think mm-hmm. of, of of traveling Brazil, oh my gosh, almost 20 years ago, there's this concept of ficar, which, and I forget what it means now, but basically 
young people at the time um, didn't think it was strange to just kiss a stranger, not in a way that yeah. you're you're like making out. Basically, it's this idea, and it was a very much a young person thing. But it's it's more interesting to kiss somebody than to try and talk to them early on. But the ficar, the kiss, doesn't really portend anything beyond the kiss. Um, and huh. So when I was in Brazil a long time ago, um, there, there's something sort of sweet about ha- being having permission to kiss someone, and then knowing that it is that's just what it is. Right. Okay. So it's not like the first step of twenty steps. It's it's just like you just you kiss and it is what it is, and you leave it right there. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a a play thing. Like if you're if you're hanging out with someone, and this may have fallen out of fashion in Brazil, and I'm sorry, Brazilians, if I'm if I'm not uh, <laughs> characterizing this correctly, because this was almost 20 years ago. But it was basically the idea that if you see, think somebody is attractive, and you're in you know in the street, there's a lot of people around, then then kissing is an option as well as conversation, and that it's understood under the Brazilian rules. I think maybe both parties might wonder, but I guess there's less of that uncertainty that can come into because the, a kiss is something that really crosses the line between stranger and and intimate right um and i think for young men i remember being a teenager and being really scared about knowing when i was allowed to move in for the kiss you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so i i thought that was basically when i read your story uh, about a potential kiss i thought of these of that thing in brazil that suddenly it was easier it was like a kiss is just a kiss and then we just keep yeah, talking yeah. or we walk in other directions so that, so that's interesting how there's a thousand different ways a potential romantic connection can navigate that line between stranger friend lover or just a random person totally fascinating fascinating i yeah i mean well first of all did you use your ficar liberties Often, <laughs> I, I, or do you look back in time and wish that you had you had gone for it more often? No, maybe three or four times, and it was actually introduced by um, some. I was with some friends, and some young women came up and introduced themselves, and basically asked for a kiss. Um, and hmm. it seemed so weird, but it, it ended up being sort of delightful. And um, yeah, so it happened a few times. It was always weird. I never really got used to it, but. It was like it, it's hard to explain. I wish I could talk to the, the person I was at that age. Um, yeah, yeah. But but it it just seemed like maybe myself is the stranger I need to write a letter to. Like what was I expecting about this? But there's something. There's a relief, you know, if you're a young man who's always nervous about when is and isn't permissible to to make a move. Yeah. And when you're in a culture where it's just it's a kiss and that's it, and sometimes it's nice to to spend a, a couple seconds kissing instead of just standing on the street and talking. Um, yeah, maybe maybe someone with Brazilian heritage needs to write an essay about this. But I, it just it, <laughs> it fascinated me. I had a friend visit from the United States when I was spending time in Brazil in in two thousand eight, and I explained it to him, and we went and we kissed some girls, and he said, "This is kind of fun," you know. Um, <laughs> And so it's a strange way, kissing in general is a way of navigating that romantic divide between stranger. Because I think once, on, like on a date, once you kiss somebody, the terms are a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then if you're, if you're in a culture yeah. where a kiss has, portends less, you know, I'm talking to you in Egypt, I doubt fikar is a thing in Egypt. Um, and, and so um, culturally no. <laughs> kissing has different energies. Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, a number of things come to mind. One is that you do gain a lot of information from a kiss. So Hmm. I'm imagining a new version of speed dating where like, it's just, you know, you just skip the small talk and like mooch for 
10 seconds. Um, but also, I mean, I think what you're saying gets to a phenomenon that drove the essay I, I wrote, which is that, like, a part of what enabled me to kiss that stranger was knowing I would never see him again. Mm-hmm. If I were, in, like, he and I, not only, like, were we kind of like ships in the night, like, he was going uphill, I was going downhill. And you were in France. Um, he lived. He lives in France. Mm-hmm. I don't. You know, right, I was just right. passing through on a on a work trip mm-hmm. um, as a teacher, and there was just a sense that like we were we were unmoored from each other's routine lives and realities. And you know, had he been somebody who I was going to be in a room with for four hours or on a bus with, I just I would have had such a different read on the potentiality there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that it was the the transience that brought about that physical connection and created a certain tone for that moment that made me want to write back to that person yeah. and genuinely thank him. Like there is, I mean, there's. I put that essay in the chemistry section of the book because it is, you know, there's sexual charge in it and it is about attraction, but. But there is also a, like a really genuine like, hey, like, thanks for being that person with whom I could do X, Y, Z. Because mm. at that particular juncture in my life, mm-hmm. I needed to celebrate that freedom. Mm. And, you know, I'm in such a different phase of life now. Like, I have a kid. I am married. Like, the last thing I'm going to be doing is making out with a stranger on the right. top of a hill in France <laughs> right, at right. 7 a.m., no less. Mm. But, um, but the letter to stranger gave me this awesome opportunity to like bottle up a really particular moment in my life and travel vignette and memory, um, in a very scenic place. But, um, you know, looking back now, I just, I so appreciate that the form gave me the means to just like encapsulate the beauty of that encounter. I'm wondering if strangerness has a different energy, has sort of a gendered energy, because I'm thinking about kisses specifically. Um, and so much of my self-consciousness when I was young is wondering whether or not it was appropriate. And I would imagine women travelers have strangers who are sort of up in their faces in a way that are continually annoying. And in fact, one of the essays in the book is about a woman who's just sort of stopped on a hike and she's approached by a man and she's sort of had sort of these eye-rollingly, frustratingly, um, you know, being hit on situations before. It ends mm-hmm. up having mm-hmm. a little bit more nuance um, that really goes a lot deeper than just sort of a flirtation. In fact, in a way, isn't a flirtation at all. So what is it like? <laughs> how does how does being a woman, woman, a woman traveler in the world have its own energy in how you interact with strangers? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, well, I think it changes as you age, and I think the way we carry ourselves changes over time. Um, so, the Egypt that I navigate as a traveler now, as a as a Westerner now, like mm-hmm. moving through space, is very different than the Egypt I first encountered as a 28-year-old who is new to the Arab world, who was moving through space solo, who didn't want to take anyone's advice about using a driver and, you know, just thought I could, like, hit the streets and hop on the subway in Cairo and make it on my own. Like, I just, I was a different ball of energy, and I'm sure I carried myself very differently than I do now as as 
a 40-year-old and a, and a mom and somebody who's married to a person who everyone knows in this little little village that we live in. So, well, actually, just I to jump in, really- one of one of your travel essays that one of my favorite travel essays of yours is about Egypt. It's about Cairo. It's about wearing a hijab and not being able to be a stranger. Somehow, people knew you were not an Egyptian woman underneath that hijab. So it feels like that younger version of you, maybe I'm wrong, um, was was navigating that Egyptian world that you're now in as an older person. Yeah, I mean, I think I, there's no way I would write that that essay now, um, hmm. for sure. I mean, I think that um, I embarked on that experiment and wearing a full... Uh, a full hijab, like head to toe, so you couldn't see anything of me. You couldn't see that I was white or had fair hair. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went to a market that I'd always wanted to wander um, with, like, full freedom to just go wherever I wanted, look at whatever I wanted to look at. Um, And I think that the craving to go on that adventure or run that experiment was very much driven by the sense of being overly looked at, huh. being always in a in a in a extreme minority out on the street, um, and I just there was a lot I didn't understand yet about Muslim culture, um, and and so I think that I think there was a there was a ferocity and kind of a, a feminist energy to that essay that I would I would write a I would complicate more now, now Mm. that I have my bearings here and have many Egyptian women friends and Mm. have different access points than somebody who just parachutes into Cairo for a month does. I have Mm -hmm. such different access points now. That's that's sort of a challenge of a travel writer, um, is that oftentimes we are, almost by definition, we're in this liminal space wherein we don't really know. And a lot of travel stories, it feels like, are about the not knowing, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, there's part of that mindset and that state that I envy now as somebody who is just hunkered down in Egypt and lives a very routine life here. Like, hmm. my life is pretty normal, actually. The, the backdrop looks exotic, but I mean, my days are like, get up, get my kid changed, you know, go into work with my husband and, you know, work on writing and editing from an office and then I come home at night. But I, you know, sometimes I wish that I was in that traveler mode and was like, you know, interviewing people and researching and pounding the pavement and going places on my own and, you know, having that kind of hunger that you have when you're new to a place where you just want to know everything and you want to figure things out. And I think that sometimes short trips as much as, yes, we've, we've just said like your access points are limited, but you have a whole different appetite and you give yourself over to the place Hmm. with a real totality that is hard to sustain for six months, two years, you know, like, Hmm. I mean, there was no, during that month I spent in Cairo, I wasn't like looking to take a yoga class. I wasn't looking to buy the foods that would make me feel healthy. Like I was just full in like all Cairo all the time, every single day. And I think that kind of energy is, um, is pretty magical and it does create great stories. 
Well, I, I, I agree. And, you know, when I was reading letters to a stranger and I was thinking of my own stories, like 80% of them were from the first couple of years of my career as a traveler when I was so, wow. when I was so wide open and when, when, when I was really affected by not knowing and, you know, strangers as people who helped me navigate my not knowing. And so it was, it was interesting as I, as I made these associations, actually, Pico's story talks about Myanmar and a trishaw driver he met there and the process of writing letters to this person. And it made me think of my own letters that I exchanged with someone from Myanmar 20 years ago. And, you know, Mm. recently, as I think, you know, I, I met the woman I married, I was cleaning out my house to make room for her. And I found this letter from Mm -hmm. this person in Myanmar from 20 years ago. And it's like, this is really interesting. I'm going to write her back 20 years later. And it was sent back. She's not there anymore. Uh, this person who was oh, probably no. a, a high school student in Myanmar. And of course, Myanmar is a very troubled place. Um, yeah, it, it's so strange that this letter was sitting in my drawer for who knows how long of my bachelorhood. And it wasn't a romantic thing. It was just a, a schoolgirl I'd spoken in her class and she was the star student and wrote me a letter in English. And I probably wrote her back then. And But I saw that address and I wanted to write her back. And so reading Pico's story reminded me of that own time in my own mm. career when I was a very young traveler and this meant a lot to me. I remember I got a paper letter from a guy I met in Cambodia, a sweet guy. I came back to the United States months later and he had written me a letter sweetly asking me to lend him $10,000 to buy some rice and start oh, a farm. <laughs> so, so I think sometimes, obviously we're strangers to the people who host us and um, yeah. I don't know what these people saw in me to write me paper letters, and that's a technologically old thing now. Um, But yeah, Pico's story reminded me of this very raw, young traveler self who maybe was vulnerable to strangers in a way that I'm not as much. Yeah, and open to them. Like I think you have to have the space in your mind and your heart. And Hmm. I think when when you move through a new environment, wearing that kind of openness on your face and on your body, I think people respond to it. And a lot of this, I think, is subconscious. I don't think we realize we're doing it. I don't think other people realize they're responding to it. But I definitely noticed when I was living in New York City and I would run these experiments where I just, on a on a given day, on a weekend day when I was feeling blue, I needed some travel in my life, but couldn't afford to actually get an international plane ticket. I would just ride a subway to the end of the line. And Hmm. the encounters I had with strangers at the ends of the subway lines, and I'm talking about places that were no more than two miles from my apartment in Brooklyn, like really not that far geographically, Mm -hmm. but something about being in travel mode and being in, in a place that I'd never been before and not knowing where I was, like I purposely wouldn't research like what's at Mm. the end of the two line, what's at the end of the R. Um, I would just get off the train when it stopped at the terminus and walk up to the street and try to get my bearings and try to find an interesting place to eat. And it put me in such a different mode and people responded to it. Um, I had such rich encounters with people, like people gifting me with food at restaurants and telling me about, you know, their lives. And it it just, it switched something on that I had been missing so much in New York. And I found it to be pretty extraordinary that all it took was 
$2.25 and (laughs) (laughs) uh, hopping on a train like in the opposite direction I usually rode it. You know, Colleen, I still remember the first person I met the first time I got in a New York subway. Um, Mm, I was was 23 years old. Um, Maybe I should always get on subways in that spirit, but I was 23 years old. I'd (laughs) never been in New York before. It was 1994. This is when New York was still sort of considered this dangerous, lawless place. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was with my friend Jeff, and this guy sort of saw us as, as... as sort of lost outsiders, and he started talking to us. Well, it turns out he was a porn performer. He was he was like in one of the most famous porn movies of all time, um, and uh, wow. so it was really strange. And I think it was it was one of those way, like we were we were had gone to a Christian school on the West Coast. We were sort of huddled close together, and I think he saw us as sort of a young gay couple or something. He he just sort <laughs> of read us wrong. We weren't, but I think somehow he. He was carrying this big bag of VHS tapes, and I guess some of them were porn tapes, and he was telling us about his career as a porn performer, and it was just so bizarre. Um, But it wasn't creepy because he just wanted to make sure we knew where we were going. Uh, And I guess not everybody meets a a porn performer the first time they get on the subway. But I think that openness (laughs) at a time when you know, late night television would have you believe that you would be murdered on the street in New York. Um, we, right, were, we were sort of right. welcomed on our very first subway ride by this guy who just wanted to make sure we were okay and wanted to tell a story about his own life. I love that. I love that. Well, there's one of your letter to a stranger essays right, <laughs> right there. Right. Well, I'm curious, what are some other spaces that lend themselves toward interactions with strangers? Because I was thinking as I was reading the book about airplanes put you in places with strangers mm. and then hostels because the, I think the Craig Maud story is about someone that they, he reconnects him. He's traveling with a woman who he thinks he might love and he mm. reconnects with a guy in a hostel who sort of sees that he sees in him that he loves this woman, right? That he sees the love he hasn't quite mm-hmm. been able to articulate. So uh, um, maybe let's talk about that a little bit. Spaces that lend themselves, spaces that force us into contact with strangers, subways, planes, hostels, um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a great question and I I love I love burrowing down into this the slight differences between these different modes of transportation because right away I'm thinking about a New York subway train and how when you start talking to someone it feels like you have an audience because hmm. you have the people across the aisle who are going to like, you know, like cast glances at you and kind of eavesdrop whereas mm-hmm. on a plane you at least have the semblance of privacy. Like the people in front of you might hear you. Hmm. Um, They probably hear you talking with the stranger next to them, but you at least don't have to kind of reckon with their gaze. So there's, Hmm. there's a little bit Hmm. more space for privacy, but I also think on planes, it's a really common experience to feel stuck with the person next to you and to be wary of conversation and starting Mm -hmm. it because then you're, you have to be like in it for four hours and there's no out Whereas I think on a train, for example, um, where you can move about a little and like, like, let's say you're going from like, you know, I used to ride Amtrak from Iowa to Colorado. If the person in my aisle turned out to be a dud, I could always take refuge in the dining car and like hmm. without it looking like weird or offend, like without me offending them by leaving because going to the dining car is, is customary. Right. So I think... It, within these different modes of transportation, you do have these like slight differences in the way you're you're situated that actually make a, a huge difference. 
Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you were talking about trains. Like one of the most famous romantic travel movies ever made was Before Sunrise, right? Where mm-hmm. um, Ethan Hawke and Julia Del P are basically strangers on a train, and over the course of the night, they become less strangers to each other. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think travel really sanctions these environments because I think a lot of us come yeah. of age going to hostels. Um, and actually, another story that occurred to me when I was reading Craig Maud's story about a hostel is that I remember the point in history when smartphones and computers were changing the social environment of hostels and they were just less spontaneously mm-hmm. social. And I remember being in a hostel in, in Washington, D.C. in like 2007 and really being disappointed because everybody was looking at their computers. They weren't talking to each other. Yeah. And the only girl who was trying to talk to people was a little bit Jesus-y, you know, maybe just sort of a little <laughs> bit socially awkward. And it was clear that she was sort of being Jesus-y. And actually people didn't, in a way, <laughs> she was a gift to that lounge because when she left, people started talking about her. And we started interacting uh-huh. after she left. And so I, in a way, she's one of the people I want to write a letter to. And it's just like, I'm sorry that you didn't convert anybody <laughs> to Jesus that day, but you really broke down this technology barrier in, in the hostel lounge. So I just love hostels, you know, for the, for the way they throw strangers together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, yes, she catalyzed something mighty in her Jesus talk. It's funny. I, I think that I don't, I'm not as drawn to hostels. I will confess. I think in part, because when I am in that full on travel mode, I am so, I'm so, I like spend it all on the street. I'm very Hmm. outwardly, engaged. And at the end of the day, I just really want to like pull hard back into myself. And there's nothing I love more than like just a straight up bland hotel room for one. (laughs) I'm just, I'm that person who loves getting bumped from a flight so I can get a voucher at Hmm. a boring like, uh, airport, uh, Radisson hotel. I just, I just, I've had so many blissy moments in, really bland hotels, which I know is like the opposite of what you'd expect from someone who values like authenticity right. <laughs> and travel and connections and culture. But I think, I think when I'm in that traveler mode, I exert myself so hard and engage so hard that I kind of need to gather myself at the end of the day. Well, I, I, I would like to touch on that because I actually wrote a note to myself about a certain kind of hotel that speaks to the strangeness of travel. But I'm curious to know, are, do you consider yourself an introvert, Colleen? Um, yeah, more than an extrovert. I mean, I, okay. I, I swing both ways, but I, I think if I'm not mistaken, you know you're an introvert when you replenish yourself by being alone. And yeah. that is definitely the case for me. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. I, I like hostels, but there are, I know those moments. And actually to touch on the other thing I was thinking about is that, you know, I cut my travel teeth in Asia and often it's cheaper. It's just as cheap to get a cheap hotel or a guest house mm. as it is a hostel. And one note I wrote to myself when I was reading the book you edited was that there's something about a cheap hotel that speaks to the presence of strangers in the way that a standardized corporate hotel doesn't. Um, and, and you can agree or disagree, but it feels like there's sort of a placelessness to the corporate hotel, whereas there's these cheap hotels that might be catering to people in Rajasthan, to local travelers in Rajasthan or, 
in Indonesia that somehow feel very specific and you can almost feel the presence of the strangers who've been there before you because they, hmm. they, they ineffectively erase the placeness you know, they, they, they can't erase place in the way that a corporate, a nice beige corporate hotel does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Have you, have you ever felt that in, in sort of a quirky, funky hotel? Or is your hotel, Yen, more about getting back to yourself and turning off the world and centering yourself? Well, I th- you know, I would say that I have felt something very similar in like Airbnbs um, that have like a guest book where lots of people sign and hmm. um, you get the sense that the host really takes pride in leaving like a guidebook and, um, you know, really kind of liaising with the people that come through their home. I think I still sometimes in certain cases would choose the bland hotel um, because I want to shut off stimulation and take notes. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I want to like turn off the faucet <laughs> because it feels like I've been doused in stimuli hmm. and I just want to make sure I get it all down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most important thing is just like fealty to my note taking and that kind of, and, and that is a kind of self gathering too. Like when I, when I write notes about some sort of journey I've been on, I'm shaping the experience. I'm I'm doing something with it that makes me feel like kind of settled and um, kind of I'm having a hard time putting it into words, but it's like there's a sense of overwhelm. I mean, traveling is wonderful and awe-inspiring, but I oftentimes feel overwhelmed by how much I've gathered and I need to get back to a space where I can shape some of that fodder into at least the beginning of a story. Well, I think this might be good advice for my non, for my listeners who don't aspire to be writers, but that writing as a ritual that helps you sort of center yourself and make sense of otherness and ground yourself in a way. Um, I think that whether you have aspirations as a writer or not, it's probably a good way to, to help navigate your sense of self as you are a stranger in these other lands. Um, I'm curious to know, have you ever stayed an extended time in a place that caters to travelers? I, I mention this because I wrote my book Vagabonding over the course of eight months in what was essentially a residence hotel in southern Thailand on the border with Myanmar. And it allowed me to see all the different types of travelers who were a stranger to this place and a stranger to me and sort of the attitudes that they brought to that place. Have you ever had a chance to, to sit still and sort of observe travelers as a, as a stationary person? Interesting question. Um, I would say that the year and a half I spent in Mexico was probably the closest mm-hmm. to that in that I, um, Mexico, a lot of, this is an underknown fact, but it's home to the largest number of American expats. So there's a huge mm-hmm. retiree community in Mexico. And part of what I was doing there, uh, I had a grant to interview these people and write about this phenomenon. And so I spent a lot of time in like San Miguel de Allende and hmm. a, a, a town called Ajijic that is just, it's, it's almost like entirely full of American retirees. Like there are hmm. nursing homes there for wow. Americans who convalesce mm-hmm. in Western Mexico, you know? So I was really deep into that phenomenon and observing kind of like the different 
categories of expats and the ways in which people within this community had animosities towards each other. You know, they would, they had a lot of judgments about fellow Uh, expats and uh, I found it really fascinating. I mean, you and I have been talking mostly about um, the, the gravity that, unmoored people feel towards each other and these wonderful connections. But there's also, there's kind of a dark side of uh, like pretty intense judgment. And, uh, and there's a way in which when you're a foreigner abroad and you see another foreigner, they sometimes hold up a mirror to you that you don't want to look in. Like you don't want to, you don't want to see how foreign you look. You don't want to see how much you stand out and you're more inclined to get like deeply annoyed by the volume of somebody else's voice or the shorts they're wearing. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I see what female tourists wear in Egypt mm, and I'm mm. just like, honey, like, right. cover up your decolletage, like do a little bit of research before you get here. Um, so I think there can be a certain ferocity of judgment that's unique to tra- like fellow travelers and people who are living abroad who share the same origin point or, or home country. Well, I definitely. Have you read, read Ben Lerner's Leaving the Atocha Station? A long time ago. I, yeah, it's not fresh in my mind, but I did read it and was very taken by it. His character in there, who's sort of abroad on a poetry fellowship in, in Madrid, is very judgmental towards other Americans for that exact reason. It, it, he sort of feels insecure in his own expatriation. Mm. And so he, and he hates being recognizes an American immediately. And it just, that just feels really familiar. Um, yeah. and when I was living in that little hotel in, in Thailand, riding Vagabond, I remember sometimes my poor landlady had posted some signs in, in the bus station like two years before, and she hadn't cleaned them all up yet. And so the price for the room was different. And so people would come and then she would ask for a higher price and then get mad. And, and so you just, <laughs> you just really see how little we know as travelers, you know, they, they, they basically, they paid, their hard-earned backpacker money to take a bus to this specific part of town and ask my landlady for a room. And she's like, I'm sorry, I have to pay the bills. It was, it was that cheap a few years ago. It's a little bit more now. I'm sorry I haven't taken the signs down yet. And so you sort of see the pettiness that can surround or sort of the entitlement or the paranoia okay. that can surround you as an outsider in a place in a way, you know, since strangers is the metaphor we're talking about here, it sort of sheds a light on the strangeness of strangerness <laughs> because mm. you're you're slightly more grounded than the people who are wandering through, but not that much more. Yeah, and you know, I used to be fascinated by a phenomenon when I taught on a semester at sea voyage years ago and I traveled around the world with like 600 college students. The degree to which they would they would um, bar like they would try to like get the cheapest price, and they would get so incensed if they hmm. had the sense that they were being ripped off. Like was was really it, it was it was so extreme, and it was really something to behold. And I got really interested in why, as I get older, I just don't believe in fighting those battles as hard as I might have hmm. at age twenty one. Like I just to me it's totally okay to be overcharged. I have resources that uh, most of the people around me here in Egypt don't have any access to whatsoever. And so I I don't know. I think it's, um, it's really interesting how some of those, like that, that those principles of like wanting, you know, a fair price and not never wanting the prices to shift based on what you look like or what country Mm. you're from, like those 
those principles can kind of like dissolve over time. And I, my husband uh, has been in Egypt for far longer than I have. And um, I would say that like, if you just compared us on like a frugality front, I am the more frugal one of the two of us, Mm -hmm. but because he's been in Egypt longer and he's, he's so familiar with like what the prices should be and Mm. much more clued in. He's, he's so much more, um, I guess, I would say particular about not being overcharged and hmm. wanting a fair price. Whereas I'm like, this person was great to us. Like lay on the tip, like triple the tip, you know? Um, yeah. And so I think it's, it's interesting how, how those things, how those things shift. Yeah. I, I think young backpackers are especially attuned to that because as, as young travelers, I feel like we really don't want to be mistaken for the yokel tourist. And one way that we certify our savviness is being able to get local prices. Um, and so it, it, it creates this, this weird energy wherein, in a way, as young travelers, we're competing with each other to, play the, to pay the local price. Um, and we can sometimes lose track of where we stand in relation to the entire world. And I know that one of the essays in your, in, in your book talks about how Backpacker circuits are pretty tight. You end up running to the same people again and again. <laughs> and so it, to me, it feels like, well, actually, I saw this when I was living in Thailand, is that you don't have to wander that far off of any travel trail, including the backpacker trail, to find the local price. It, it won't occur to the merchant who doesn't get many foreigners to overcharge you for something because that's just the price that they charge for this product. Whereas it's the backpackers right. who are who think that they're off the beaten path, but in fact, they're just on a very beaten backpacker path that has no chubby Americans and Canadians on it that makes them think they're on an authentic path. And so they're competing with each other. Um, and so it's funny how we get these little glimpses in a way, like you were talking about how you probably wouldn't write that article about wearing a hijab in the same way you did when you were a younger traveler. Being back in Egypt gives you perspective on your younger self as a traveler. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And yeah. And I mean, I think that the, those little issues that would nettle a younger traveler, I think, there's a, something helpful about being older and having perspective and, um, you know, also understanding that money comes and goes and you mm. don't have to like, uh, you know, just wrap your hand so hard around, um, that 10 pesos or whatever it is that, um, that you're fighting with someone about. One thing that we sort of chatted about before this interview was the idea of, your book is about um, letters to strangers. You you pose the idea of what strangers would letter, write a letter to you. Um, what would your answer to that be? Who who do you think, what strangers have you met do you think would be curious enough to send you a letter? What strangers do you think are still wondering, wondering who this Colleen person is? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's such a powerful question to engage with. And it's so, it's so, I mean, it's also unknowable, right? Like where, where have we stood out so wildly that, you know, a stranger who saw us started writing a narrative in their mind about us. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, there was one stranger in Buffalo that in some ways I felt like the typical, the typical travel dynamics that I was used to of me, like, showing up in a foreign country, being super clueless, getting 
help and guidance from lovely strangers, connecting with them, and then ultimately writing about it or, you know, wanting to write back to those people or actually writing back to those people mm-hmm. if I could. Um, and Buffalo is your hometown, right? Yes. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Buffalo is my hometown. Yeah. So those dynamics were kind of flipped on their head one day in Buffalo. I was mm-hmm. back in Buffalo staying with my parents after an extended time in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I was on the highway and this guy um, was pulled over at the side of the road and he was waving his arms kind of wildly um, in, in a in a spot on the highway that was quite dangerous. Like there was a hmm. lot of um, convergence right at the spot. And so um, it seemed like a pretty desperate thing to do to pull over right at that spot and to try to wave down another car. So I just quickly pulled over um, and this man came up to the window and said, help, <laughs> I need to get to the airport. I am lost. And he was, he was, um, somebody huh. of, I'm guessing Indian descent, maybe Sri Lankan, but you know, mm-hmm. South Asian. Mm-hmm. And he was driving somebody to the airport who needed to get to the airport. Uh, it seemed like a family member and he could, he, he was close. We were very close to the airport, but he couldn't get there. And so his solution was just to pull over on the side of the road and wave down another <laughs> car. And I was so taken aback. I mean, he represented to me how vulnerable and clueless I must have seemed in so many different environments and cultures. And, you know, it just, it felt good for a change mm. to be like, okay, mm here we go. Like, follow me. I'll get you to the airport. Um, and I just, you know, I told him to stay behind me and we, I got him into the airport, um, parking garage and, and said good, uh, an effusive goodbye. And it, it was a really memorable moment. Um, I would imagine for both of us, I think a lot of these encounters with strangers when you're traveling are more impactful to you than they are to people who, live in that country. Hmm. Um, that might not be fair, but I would, I would guess that that's the case. Um, I think when you're traveling, you're especially vulnerable and you're without your people. So you don't have much else to, to fall back on mm-hmm. assuming you're solo traveling, which, um, which I usually am. So I think that this encounter, because the stakes were high for him, um, like emotionally, he really wanted to get this person to the airport. It was probably a memorable exchange, but it, it was for me as well because it made me feel like, oh my gosh, I just got to repay some of my karmic debt. Hmm. I just got to be that person who does something game-changing to a stranger I hardly know. Yeah, it's the guest-hope rela- uh, relationship that is a part of travel and has sort of become institutionalized through tourism. Uh, and it occurs to me that actually the, the the strangers who might write letters to me are, are in a similar situation, but not in my own home. But basically, it's play, I think basically the tourist industry, it sort of greases the skids of the visitor. There's always sightseeing to do, or there's the backpacker trail activities that one does. But I feel like the time when I've stood out to strangers is that when I'm sort of wandering through a place that isn't used to outsiders, um, mm-hmm. and they they see me as... They, they sort of raise an eyebrow and think, 
well, this is different. And I think those are the ones who maybe it's sort of, it makes their day different in an interesting way. And I think, you know, when I found those let- those old letters from people in Burma or Cambodia, those were not from tourist villages. Those were from places where my presence was sort of weird. And those strangers hmm. literally, or those people literally wrote a stranger to me. One of them asked me for $10,000 in, in rice investments. <laughs> but um, sweetly, right? Yeah, no, but in a very in an earnest way, because and this was another thing too. Because as an American, like, what's ten thousand dollars? And he's probably right, you know. Compared to Cambodia, um, I could change his life in a huge way. So as we near the top of the hour, I'm curious to know for my listeners, what is the argument for making yourself vulnerable as a traveler to strangers, and how can and does it deepen the travel experience? Part of the reason we travel is to expand the possibilities for our life beyond what we experience in the day-to-day world. You know, when we go about our lives on a routine day, we go from point A to point B, we repeat what we did yesterday, we eat the same thing that we ate yesterday. And I think we, we send ourselves on journeys to live more capacious lives and to kind of like jimmy open the spectrum of possibilities. And I think strangers are a huge part of that. They're, they're, they're the magic ingredient. They're the players who are going to point us in a random direction that turns out to be really enlightening. They're the people who are going to ask us penetrating questions about our home culture that makes us think harder about the places we're from. Um, I think they have so much to offer us that we can't plot out on an itinerary. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Colleen Kinder's book, Letter to a Stranger, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.